0: Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another SACPA session. During this time of social and physical distancing, SACPA believes it's important to keep engaging with the public on issues of the day. And in order to do so, we are very thankful for the continuing support we receive from the University of Lethbridge, Shaw Spotlight, and the Lethbridge Herald. Today, we have with us Kellyanne Boudoin, The topic is Leftbridge Overdose Prevention Society, Radical Love at the Boundaries of Law. Kalian Bourdain has worked with various harm reduction groups across Alberta since 2015. In September 2020, she was one of the founding organizers of the Leftbridge Overdose Prevention Society, a volunteer group providing harm reduction services including street outreach and an overdose prevention site. Currently, she is the Community Engagement Lead with the Lethbridge Overdose Prevention Society. In order to ask questions of the speaker during our live streaming event, you will need to sign in to the YouTube with your Google account, please. SACPA reached out today to several individuals in the community who have opposing views to what, was, what is presented here today, offering them an opportunity to present those views to our audience. Unfortunately, none of those offers were accepted. We hope that today's question and answer period will help those who disagree with the speaker to voice their questions and concerns in a respectful and constructive manner. Thank you very much, um, Kellyanne,
1: for coming today and look forward to your talk. Thank you so much. Um, So I'm going to just start off by going over um, a bit of an agenda for what I have planned for my talk today. Uh, First, I'm going to talk about the four pillars model for drug policy. We'll go over a bit about what harm reduction is and why uh, LOPS chooses to focus on it. We'll go over uh, supervised consumption and overdose prevention sites in Canada, what the distinction is between those and what the process is for creating them. Um, As well, we'll go over some stats about the overdose crisis in Alberta, uh, supervised consumption specific to Lethbridge, and a bit about what the Lethbridge Overdose Prevention Society is doing. Uh, After I give this talk, I will be answering questions in our Q&A period, so if you have any questions along the way, just hold tight um, and we'll answer them all at the end. Uh, If we could go to the next slide, please. Um, So the Four Pillars Model for Drug Strategy is a strategy for addressing uh, substance use in uh, various countries across the world, including Canada, Germany, Australia, and Switzerland. Um, so the four pillars are harm reduction, prevention, treatment, and enforcement. Um, harm reduction addresses harms related to substance use and how to minimize those harms. And it commits to not doing harm to people suffering from addiction in the process of addressing drug use in the community. The prevention pillar is strategies and interventions that prevent harmful drug drug use and delay the first onset of substance use, um, as well as reducing substance dependence. So that can be things like Um, Having age restrictions on alcohol, tobacco, and cannabis, um, things like that, as well as um, engaging youth in education around substance use. Um, And then the treatment model um, is where there's things like withdrawal management, counseling and mental health programs, medically assisted therapies, and inpatient and outpatient treatment programs. So that's things like rehabilitation, um, things like opioid agonist therapies, um, and as well as just general uh, mental health counseling. And then the fourth pillar is enforcement. So this is where the police come in to maintain Uh, peace, public order, and public safety, and generally this is targeting the high-level drug trafficking. Uh, We'll move on to the next slide, and I'll go over a bit more in depth about what the harm reduction pillar looks like. So the harm reduction Mm -hmm. pillar accepts for better or worse that illicit and illicit drug use is part of our world, and we choose to minimize uh the harmful effects of this substance use rather than simply ignore it or condemn the people who are using substances. And it understands that drug use is a complex, multifaceted phenomenon, and it encompasses a continuum of behaviors that go um, from severe use um, all the way to total abstinence and everything in between. And there are some ways of using drugs that are clearly safer than others. So, for example, the harms that come with swallowing a pill versus um, injecting on yourself are very different and have different um, harm reduction approaches to them. Um, and it, harm reduction establishes a quality of individual and community life and well-being. And it's not necessarily looking at the cessation of all drug use as the criteria for su- uh, sorry, um as the criteria for successful interventions and policies. Um, so it is focused on, Is the person able to reduce their drug use? Are they able to take safer modes of consuming their drugs? Um, Are they able to prevent infections um, passing between people who use drugs? Um, And it also calls for the non-judgmental and non-coercive provision of services and resources for people who use drugs and the communities in which they live to reduce them in assisting the harm. So um, instead of shaming people into not using drugs, accepting that this is a reality for them at this time, however, they came to reach that point. And um, it's up to them to decide when they're ready to receive treatment and what their journey, um, possibly to abstinence, will look like. On to the next slide, please. Um Harm reduction ensures that people who use drugs and those with a history of drug use routinely have a real voice in the creation of programs and policies designed to serve them. Ultimately, people who use drugs are the experts in this field. They're the ones who are having the lived experience with drug use and have oftentimes had experience um, navigating uh, harm reduction as well as the other pillars as well. Um, So their voice is really important when it comes to creating programs for them. Harm reduction affirms that the people who use drugs are the primary agents in reducing these harms as well, so oftentimes they're supporting each other. Um, When it comes to reversing overdoses, often it's other people who use drugs who are the first one onto the scene to reverse the overdose or to contact for emergency help. Um, And it recognizes the reality that poverty, class, racism, social isolation, past trauma, sexual discrimination and other social inequalities affect people's vulnerability to and the capacity for effectively dealing with drug related harms. Um, So there's really an intersectional approach to seeing the way that people are more likely to experience addiction and as well, um, have a more difficult time um, getting treatment options or other harm reduction options as well and harm reduction doesn't attempt to minimize or ignore the real and tragic harm and danger that can be associated with illicit drug use. Um, So we're not saying that drugs are safe, that drugs are something that should be done. Um, Harm reduction just acknowledges that drug use is happening and there's real harms being done and there's interventions that can be made along the way that can prevent or minimize those harms that are coming with drug use. Um, And all of these Um, harm reduction principles that I've gone over here come directly from uh, the harm reduction organization. Um, So I'll go on to the next slide and talk a bit about why LOPS chooses to focus on harm reduction. So drug harms aren't only about the drug that's being consumed. There's a lot of environmental factors that go in to drug use um, and that's a lot of the time where if you're accepting that someone's using drugs yes there's some harms specifically related to the drugs but we can make interventions around the drug use to prevent things like using in unsanitary conditions um, improper vein nasal and skin care so if you're injecting or snorting your drugs um, and using non-sterile equipment things like that you're more likely to get infections that way um, as well as looking at sexually transmitted blood form. Sexually transmitted bloodborne infection transmissions like HIV, hepatitis B, and hepatitis C. um, Those aren't like that, those viruses don't exist within the drugs. They exist in the environment around the drug use. Um, And a lot of the times, people who use drugs are more likely to be homeless or seriously impoverished, and they're unable to meet their nutrition, sanitation, and housing needs. Um, One of the defining factors in the DSM 5 for Uh, substance abuse disorder is that you're prioritizing things like your nutrition and housing needs below um, accessing drugs. So that is a common um, factor to take into consideration when engaging with someone who has an addiction. And there's also a lot of social stigma and isolation that comes with being known to be a drug user. Um, And that can create environments where you're more likely to be using alone um or you're more likely to be hiding your drug use um and maybe that's looking like um injecting in unsanitary places maybe it's just being at home by yourself Um, but when we're not able to engage the whole community in taking care of one another there's more opportunity for things like overdose deaths and infection transmissions um Ultimately, at the end of the day, dead people don't recover. So harm reduction aims to keep people alive and healthy long enough for recovery to happen. Um, And as well, not all people who use drugs experience addiction. Um, Drug use exists on a whole continuum. So maybe um, it's someone who just has a glass of wine after work. Maybe it's someone who uh, will snort a line of coke at a party every now and then. Um, all the way up to someone who is injecting drugs on an hourly or greater basis. Um, And all along that continuum of use, there's ways to minimize harm. Um, So we'll go on to the next slide. Um, And I will give a bit of a background on supervised consumption sites and overdose prevention sites. Um, These definitions that I'll give you come from Pivot Legal Society. uh, And Pivot Legal is a group that... Focuses on um, drug and health policies, advocating for people who are homeless, uh, sex workers, and calling for police accountability. Um, And I really love these definitions that they came up with. So for supervised consumption sites, they are facilities that have been exempted by Health Canada under Section 56.1 of the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act. Inside an SCS, people can use their own drugs um, without being prosecuted for drug possession. In addition to the witness injection and emergency overdose response, SES typically offer a range of other support services, uh, sometimes called wraparound services, that include referrals to treatment programs and housing supports, um, as well as things like addiction counseling, um, maybe cultural nutrition programs, things like that. Um, Procedurally, establishing an SES is a laborious and time-consuming process, and it can take several years to get an approval since the exemption application must include information about the site's policies and procedures, personnel, financial plan, location, um, the local conditions, and a consultation with the community. Um, It's a really lengthy process, and Uh, though SCS can afford a degree of stability and longevity, operators still have to apply to extend this exemption uh, generally annually, but in some cases it can be um, up to three years or um, it can be for a shorter period as well, depending on what Health Canada decides. Um, So it is, um, this is what we had at the Arches uh, SCS and that was a process that took uh, years of community engagement to be able to open On to the next slide, and I'll go over what an overdose prevention site is, and this is what LOPS is operating. So overdose prevention sites were established as a community-based response to overdose deaths and the sluggish bureaucracy associated with SCS applications. Overdose prevention sites tend to be peer-run, so meaning run by people who use drugs, and are bare-bones facilities, uh, sometimes consisting of a tent in a public park, where people can use their illicit drugs and access sterile harm reduction equipment, as well as receive emergency overdose response as needed. Uh, many people prefer the OPS to an SES, and OPS fill a critical gap in the spectrum of harm reduction. Uh, that's because they're often lower barrier for access than SCS and offer the expertise and direct experience of experiential peer workers, so other people who use drugs are often more trusted by um, their fellow drug users. Oftentimes, uh, the OPS will allow modes of consumption that are prohibited at most SCS, uh, such as inhalation. Um, That's something that LOPS is working towards and actually was offered at the Arches SCS, so in our community it's a a little bit different. Um, Unlike supervised consumption sites, overdose prevention sites don't require an exemption from Health Canada. Um, They began as pop-up sites led by people who use drugs and they're nimble and can be set up quickly to respond to the immediate needs of the community. Uh, Despite the huge success of overdose prevention sites in saving lives, um, as well as an existence of ministerial orders in most provinces, uh, many municipalities and health authorities have failed in their responsibility and remain hostile towards folks who uh, set up the overdose prevention sites in communities. Um, And then on the next slide here, um, I'll show you, this is a map of where the overdose prevention sites are located across Canada. Um, So all of the blue ones are overdose prevention sites, the green ones are supervised consumption sites, and the yellow question marks are sites where the status is currently pending. Um, This is not the most up to date. I think it was last updated a few months ago. So in that time, um, especially during COVID, we've seen a lot of overdose prevention sites pop up um, to meet the needs of the community. Um, Then on to the next slide. Um, I'll start to go over a bit of a history of supervised consumption in Canada. So in 2003, uh, we had Insight, founded by the Portland Hotel Society, was created in um, East Hastings Street on the downtown east side in Vancouver, and this location was chosen because that was sort of the epicenter of the overdose crisis in Canada at that time, Um, They estimated that about 4,200 injection drug users were living in that area. Um, Initially, INSIGHT was granted a three-year exemption from the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act under the condition that their operations would be rigorously studied to determine the future of supervised consumption sites in Canada. And these studies found that INSIGHT was successful in reducing public drug use, overdose deaths, and HIV transmission, and it saved Uh, British Columbia taxpayers approximately $6 million per year. Um, And that was in their first uh, three years of operations. Um, But then in 2006, they were granted an extension to uh, mid-2008. And then after that, Uh, the health minister, uh, Tony Clement, he refused to renew their exemption. And this decision to not renew the exemption was taken to the Supreme Court of Canada in 2009. It was a really lengthy process, but ultimately in 2011, the Supreme Court ruled in favor of Insight, um, and they were granted um, further exemptions so the reason for doing this was when they looked at what the purpose was for the Controlled drugs and substances act um, it's looking at things like keeping the community safe and reducing uh, drug use in the communities um, and when you're looking at the safety of people uh, what insight was providing was um, health care to people who use drugs that was preventing them from dying so Um, weighing those two options, uh, looking at community safety, what Insight was doing was more significant than what the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act was, sorry, was likely to do. Um, So that is a bit about uh, how supervised consumption sites got started in Canada. After Insight, um, there was uh, overdose prevention sites that popped up, or sorry, supervised consumption sites that came up in Uh, Alberta as well as in Ontario and now they're seen across uh, many provinces um, as you saw in the map before Um, so if we go to the next slide we'll look at the overdose stats for Alberta Um, just to give you guys a bit of uh, insight into how things have been going over the last four years so if you look um, at the rate for overdose deaths um, all across the province they have been growing Um, quite quickly up from 2016 to 2020 and for those uh, 2020 numbers uh, these only reflect the first six months of the year so this isn't the full year yet and we've already exceeded um, the previous year's overdose rates by far Um, and this is just for fentanyl not for other um, opioids um, and if you look at our uh, 42.4 rate for the first six months of the year here in Lethbridge, that's already higher than Vancouver's rate as well. So um, really our city has become the epicenter in Canada for drug overdose deaths. Um, on the next slide here, we also have stats for anything that wasn't um Fentanyl, but was an opioid overdose. So that can include things like carfentanyl, uh, which is about a hundred times stronger than fentanyl, or it can be things like heroin, which is about one-fiftieth um, of the strength of fentanyl, or things like prescription drugs like oxycodone. Um, so these numbers are much lower, but they add on top of um, the drug overdose death counts from the previous stats. Um, And then on to the next one. So really with COVID-19 is where we start to see a significant increase in numbers for overdose deaths in those first six months of 2019. Um, And I imagine that when we get our stats for the end of the year, we will see um, that that pattern did not slow down. So. With COVID-19, it increased a lot of stress on people. I think um, there's not many of us that can say that 2020 was a good year for us. Um, It's been a lot of stress, a lot of chaos, and a lot of increased social isolation. And when we're isolated, like I mentioned earlier, uh, we're more likely to um, overdose because no one's around to help us um, as well. places were closing. Um, So where people were previously getting support services, they were shutting their doors, they were moving to just online or phone services. Uh, But ultimately, for people who use drugs and are homeless, um, they typically don't have a computer or a phone or access to internet. And places like the public library had shut down for um, quite a significant amount of time. Um, As well, um, then you had to sign up for a time to book specifically to use those computers and, um, time management can be really challenging for people on the streets as well. Um, being able to schedule a library time and an online appointment for your, um, addictions counselor or with your doctor, things like that, um, it can be really challenging to coordinate that even for someone who isn't living on the streets. Um, COVID also saw a significant change in our drug supply. So typically, um, drugs like fentanyl are coming either um, overseas from China and coming into the Vancouver ports, or they're coming up from the US border. And when um, there was a significant shift in bringing packages across the border, Um, there was so much uncertainty with COVID, uh, still moving people across the border has been significantly limited, so the people bringing the drugs um, aren't moving, um, which there was a a huge drop in supply, um, but at the same time, there was an increased demand, because people are more stressed out, they're looking for coping mechanisms, um, things aren't going well, and they can't get in touch with their counselors, with their doctors, things like that. Um, And then um, that led to people manufacturing synthetic um, fentanyl analogs, and those became more dangerous. Not all of them were able to be um, responded to with naloxone. And as well, there's an increased adulteration of substances. So people are mixing in things like benzodiazepines, which can't be reversed uh, by naloxone, Um, or Just in general, like the stimulant supply was seeing um, a lot more PCP, um, a lot less meth, and a lot more crack. Um, So people are taking drugs that they don't have a tolerance to, they're taking drugs that they don't know what are, and the reaction to these drugs are really unpredictable. Um, And then, (laughs) if that wasn't uh, messy enough, uh, the prices for drugs increased because there was such a limited supply. and in the world of uh, opioids, um, things like you can purchase things like carfentanil for very cheap and then dilute them and spread them out. So that way, um, it's kind of like getting a bulk discount on your drugs. Um, but that puts you at a much higher risk for OD because we don't have services here in Alberta that can tell you about the potency of the drugs that you've purchased or necessarily what's in them. So people are trying to estimate um, the dilution for these stronger substances and it's putting them at a higher risk of overdose. Um, So all of these factors combined and all across the province and as well as across Canada we're seeing uh, huge numbers of overdose deaths happening. Um, Okay, so uh, I will uh, jump ahead here um, to talk a bit about uh, the closure of arches. Um, If we can move to slide 18, cool. Um, So on August 31st of 2020, Arches ceased its operations of its SCS and most of its wraparound services, so um, the numbers that I talked about earlier did not reflect this Arches closure yet. Um, All of the services except for the Indigenous Recovery Coaching Program closed on September 30th of 2020, so effectively there's only one program still operating um, from Arches. Uh, The Alberta government promised that there would be a seamless transition of services. However, this hasn't been the case. So they gave us a mobile OPS run by Alberta Health Services that had less than 10% of the capacity of the Arches SCS. Uh, Supply distribution of uh, things like sterile injection supplies and sterile smoking supplies, um, as well as uh, the prevention programs for sexually transmitted bloodborne illnesses haven't been re-implemented queer health programs haven't been transitioned, cultural programs haven't been transitioned, and access to internet and computers to talk with uh, prescribing doctors for opioid agonist therapies has been severely limited due to COVID. Um, So onto the next slide. Uh, This is where the Lethbridge Overdose Prevention Society came in. So LOPS is made up of a group of harm reduction workers and people with lived experience using drugs, advocates and other citizens of Lethbridge. Um, at this time, we've acquired a tent that will allow people to use drugs outside of the view of the public under supervision of trained responders. Um, and our overdose prevention team is required to be certified in a healthcare level, uh, sorry, healthcare provider level first aid, overdose response, and naloxone administration. And they have Uh, it's recommended that they have crisis intervention and suicide prevention training. Um, We also have another outreach team that doesn't have those same levels of requirements, but we do have policies that require a certain number of overdose uh, prevention volunteers to be present at the tent for us to be operating. Uh, So on to the next slide. Um, We're currently trying to uh, get a legal exemption from Health Canada, but this process takes a lot of time and the immediate needs of the community can't wait on this bureaucracy. Um, So there's a history in Canada of overdose prevention sites beginning as unsanctioned and then applying for their legal exemption afterwards. Um, That's typically the path that's taken and we're going to um, continue in their footsteps for the overdose prevention sites that came before us. And we're committed to responding first to the immediate needs of our community and second to taking all the proper channels to gain our legal exemption. But we wish to maintain a collaborative and positive relationship with all involved. We have been in touch with Health Canada throughout this process, um, and we are engaging um, community and people who use drugs to decide how our programs are being run. Um, So we've set up in Galt Gardens. If you wanna move to the next slide, I'll go into a bit of information about that. Um, So, The Alberta COVID-19 opioid response surveillance for the quarter two of 2020 showed that the majority of overdose deaths in Lethbridge occurred in and around Galt Gardens. Uh, And since the closure of the Arches operated SCS, the Watch and Sage clan have both publicly expressed an observation of increased drug use in this park. And on October 23rd, the chief of the Lethbridge Police Service publicly stated in an interview that the Alberta Health Services OPS was working, um, but it's not keeping up with the demands for the service and public drug use in the community is up since Arch's closure. Um, Seconds matter when responding to an overdose and it's not just about preventing death, but also about preserving the quality of life by limiting the amount of time that there's oxygen lost during the respiratory depression associated with an overdose. So the faster we can act and the sooner we can be present at the scene of an overdose, the better chance we have of keeping people safe. Um, So, on the next slide, there's a map that shows where the overdose deaths were happening in Lethbridge, and that big red and yellow area in the middle is about where Galt Gardens is. On the left, or onto the next slide, um, there have been concerns in the community about our operations for sure. Um, There's a protest group that has shown up almost every night that we've been set up in the park. Um, The police claim that LOBS doesn't have uh, lawful enjoyment of the park, um, which is preventing them from uh, acting to keep our volunteers safe. Um, And up to six officers at a time have been stationed directly outside our tent, threatening to arrest anyone in possession of drugs who enters the tent. And there's a lot of misinformation being spread about our actions being illegal. Um, So on to the next slide. The operation of an unsanctioned overdose prevention site isn't illegal. Uh, The Good Samaritan laws protect volunteers responding to overdose, as well as people in possession of drugs or breach of conditions at the scene of an overdose. And as well, that Supreme Court decision with Insight set the precedent for um, prioritizing health care for people who use drugs over the enforcement of the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act. Next slide. Um, For community care has been a huge part of how we are being able to be operating. Um, we're entirely volunteer run and we operate solely through donations from the community at this time. So we have no paid employees and we haven't received any money from governments or other official grant sources yet. Our GoFundMe initially earned $10,000 in the first 24 hours, and we've nearly doubled those donations over the past month. And that's with no formal fundraising strategy. It's just been spreading through word of mouth and linked on our social media pages. On the the next slide. We don't just offer a place for people to use their drugs in a supervised environment. Uh, We also offer naloxone training and kit distribution, uh, syringe exchange and other harm reduction supply distribution. We hand out snacks, water, masks and clothing to uh, any street involved folks that we encounter who want them. Uh, We provide transportation and connection with other service providers. So um, if people wanna go to the shelter or if they have an appointment, um, we can help them get to those. And we operate a warming tent um, and we do community outreach walks throughout the community. Um, on to the next slide, just a bit about what the future holds for us. So, what LOPS really wants to see is the reopening of an indoor SCS um, that's inclusive of all routes of administration, not just for injecting drugs and access to wraparound services. Um, we are looking at creating um, outreach for full service sex workers in Lethbridge. Um, trying to provide more options for supervised consumption and make our outreach citywide, and as well provide HIV and pregnancy testing. Um, And then just the last slide here um, is a bit about how to support LOPS if you're interested. Um, Right now, we're looking for people to contact local political representatives and express support for harm reduction services in Lethbridge, whether that's LOPS or any harm reduction, We just need those services in place, whoever's providing them. Um, As well, you can come volunteer with us. um, If you get in touch with us um, by email or over any of our social media sites, you can donate to our GoFundMe or arrange donations of material goods. Um, And then that is it for my talk. So if you guys have any questions, I can start to answer them. Just give me one second to take a sip of water here. I've been talking for a minute.
0: Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for that presentation. That was uh, whoo. you cramped a lot into that first half hour. Well done. Um, we have quite a few questions lined up right. here, so um, I'm going to jump in right away. Uh, and the first question came in bright and early from uh, Shay van, Sch- van der Schaal. Uh, Leftbridge is renowned for its wind. How have you been
1: managing that dynamic? Um, it's certainly been challenging so we did start by acquiring a tent that was wind rated for um, up to 55 kilometers per hour and we do have um, sandbags that we use to hold the tent down Um, but ultimately it's really challenging there's been some times where we have to take the tent down for safety reasons so we would love to see in the long term something like a mobile van or physical building for us to be in it would make things a lot easier but we're taking it one step at a time okay
0: um our next question comes from uh reverend florence Revnud sorry revnet florence and i'm not sure if it's a question or a comment i'll just read it as it's as it's worded in the world of China, importing this crap and doctors relying too heavily on them." And that's it. I don't know if you want to okay. comment on that or?
1: I mean, I, I think one thing to note is that there's always been um, substance use in humans uh, since the beginning of time. I I don't think that necessarily pointing fingers at specific um, individuals or nations is helpful. Um, But I do understand that certainly um, the approach to dealing with substance use has been um, subpar in Canada thus far.
0: Our next question comes from Laurie Schultz. Can you comment on the treatment pillar? How many spots were available one or two years ago? And how many spots are available now? What else is important to know about the status of treatment
1: services? Um, well, uh, I can't speak too much to treatment services, but in my experience uh, supporting the community, um, and accessing these treatment services, there hasn't been um, enough of an increase to meet the demand. Um, so people are waiting for weeks, um, sometimes months at a time to get into, um, the treatment programs that they would prefer or would work for them. And as well, the treatment models that are available right now are often, um, just abstinence based models that don't take an inclusive approach to looking at things like, um, moderating and minimizing people's drug use, um, I think that there's been a lot of commitment for money for more treatment options, but we haven't seen those services provided yet. So right now, um, like I would love to see more treatment options and more money going into that. But um, today, as it stands, people are dying in the streets. So um, that's where harm reduction comes in to try and solve what's within our reach.
0: Okay. Our next question comes from Shay again. Thanks, Kellyanne, for your presentation. In addition to residential treatment, what other medical treatments are there available?
1: Oh, yeah. Um, So looking at things like opioid agonist therapies, um, so that's things like methadone or suboxone that help um, with managing withdrawal symptoms. They are oftentimes more successful than the typical residential treatment program, um, especially for things like fentanyl and carfentanil. Um, But that's a bit out of my scope to uh, comment on much further. Um, One thing I would like to note, though, for people who are not aware, is that the government is currently um, taking away some opioid agonist treatment therapies, specifically um, injection treatment therapies. Can I ask a follow-up question? Uh, yeah, to that?
0: Um When you see people in the tents, um, do you refer? Do you give them information about treatment options, or you're just simply there to observe?
1: Um, we do have information uh, for treatment options in um, the supplies that we bring out to the tent each night. Um, as well, the vast majority of our volunteers have experience working either um, in the treatment programs or Um, doing other work with harm reduction or addictions and mental health in the community. So um, we do provide information on those services, people who have experience with those services um, and try and coordinate getting people into them. Um, We're not, like, although our focus is on the harm reduction pillar, um, it doesn't work with just the harm reduction pillar, right? We need to take a holistic approach to addressing substance use.
0: Okay. Okay. Our next question comes from Ian Hurdle. From family and businesses located within the three blocks to four kilometers from Archer's site, they have noticed their alleys have become preferred drug use sites based on observation and debris. Comment, i.e. unsupervised.
1: Um, Well, yeah. arches used to be a place for people to use drugs inside and that building's gone so um I mean those people who use drugs didn't go anywhere they're still in our community um at least those of those of them who haven't already passed away this year um and that's what's going to happen is they're going to go back to using in alleys um some of them have started using at the mobile ops but Um, like I mentioned before, they only have space for less than 10% of what Arch is offered. So for that other 90% of people, uh, most of them don't have homes. They don't have spaces to go to. Um, yeah, it's going to be in the alleys and I wish, I wish there was something we could do about it. And that's part of what Lops is doing is saying like, Hey, here's a tent where, um, we have places for you to dispose of your drug debris, to use in a sanitized space, to use out of the view of everyone else. Um, but yeah, that's, that's the best we can do. And I would love to see more efforts come forward to address those problems as well. We can't do it alone for sure.
0: Okay. Um, our next question comes from Cheryl Bradley, and I'm just going to, um, pop that slide that she was talking about up on the screen. Um. Cheryl Bradley, thank you for your presentation. The map in your presentation shows OPS in BC and Alberta, but not in Eastern Canada. Why is that?
1: Um, I think that uh, part of that is due to um, there being a higher population of people who use drugs in BC and Alberta and as well as in Ontario. Um, At this time, at least when the map was made, There weren't any OPSs in Atlantic provinces, I'm pretty sure Um, there's work being done to open more now, um, but I haven't been following along enough with um, the eastern maritime provinces um, or in the territories up north either. Um, Overall, British Columbia tends to have a government that's more accepting of harm reduction policies, so it's been um, easier for them to establish uh, ops's there. Okay. Our
0: next question comes from uh, Kurt Peterson. What is your relationship with the city
1: of Lovebridge, if any? Um, there there hasn't really been a a lot of engagement between the city and us, to be honest. Um, we've been trying to meet. With the city um, since we've started. And a lot of the times there's pushback. So um, that's, and not necessarily pushback, but scheduling things that get in the way. Um, We want to have a better relationship with the city. Um, We are trying to reach out and to come up with cooperative solutions, but um, in the absence of any um, feedback from them, we're just continuing on until we can get together and have those conversations.
0: Our next question comes from Beth Mundo. Thank you so much, Kalyan. Are you a vo- are you all volunteers? Is your financing all by donation?
1: Yes. Um, yeah. Everyone who's with Lops is a volunteer, we don't have anyone paid for what they do for us, um, and as well, um, all of our money that's coming in is through our GoFundMe.
0: Our next question comes from Mark Goodall. How can you operate if there are six police office, officers ready to arrest those in possession of drugs at your site? Or did, it, did I misunderstand what you said?
1: Uh, No, that's not a misunderstanding. Um, To put it quite bluntly, we can't operate with the police standing there threatening people who are coming in. Um, Regardless of what our legal team um, has advised on charges not being able to stick, um, the presence of police is still a deterrent and I would never want to encourage our clients to put themselves in that level of a vulnerable situation. Um, for the injections that we have witnessed. They've been at times where the police are not present at our tent. Um, Police presence has increased uh, significantly since the first week that we were operating. Um, And then when that happens, we just provide what services we can that don't include supervised injections. So um, things like having our space heater set up in our tent for people to warm up, handing out snacks, food and clean supplies. Um, we do what we can, but we would love to find an agreement with the city that includes police not literally standing outside our tent. <laughs> I think
0: the city is doing budget right now, so you may want to <laughs> infiltrate that. Um, our next question comes from Timony, Timothy from the Lethbridge Herald. Chief of police has called LOPS, illegal despite your claims, but has also noted no illegal activity has yet been seen. It seems you have been able to deliver the services. So how does that? How does this help?
1: Um, to clarify on that, what they mean when they say they have not seen any illegal activity is that police have not been present when people are injecting drugs. Um, so we're not able to operate successfully, um, with the police presence there. Um, and we are, you know, we do plan on challenging, um, the police on their assumption that our operations are illegal, but that is also a very lengthy process. Um, and so in the meantime, um, we would like to come to some understanding with the police if they are going to, suggest that what we're doing isn't illegal, then they can move on. They don't need to stand outside the tent.
0: OK, our next question goes from Laurie Schultz. Comments have been made comparing LOPS and then in brackets and SCS with Vancouver, indicating harm reductions, indicating harm reduction services will create ongoing and perpetual camps. Would you be able to comment
1: on this view? Um, yeah, so I think that Lethbridge and Vancouver are currently um, very different cities in terms of their population numbers. Um, and right now, um, so long as shelter space meets the capacity, Um, for people to sleep in at night, then um, perhaps they don't see as much of a need to camp in tents. Whereas uh, when you see tent cities popping up, it's not about the supervised consumption being offered. It's usually about the lack of housing and shelter services. Um, So I don't think that our operations are going to influence um, tent cities. And as well, um, I would suggest Um, that the person who asked that question look into what came first. Was it the tent city that then created an OPS to meet the needs of its citizens? Or did a tent city gather around the OPS? And my understanding is that it's consistently the former.
0: Henny Mundell asks, uh, do you have any medically trained people on site like
1: doctors and or nurses? Um, So, yes, we have volunteers who are doctors and nurses. Um, At this time, um, just to protect their licenses, um, we're not offering medical services until we get our exemption from Health Canada, Um, and once everything is cleared with Health Canada, we'll be able to reassess and offer uh, more robust services from a medical and nursing perspective.
0: Uh Mundell, how many users can be in the tent at one time, question mark? How many people do you have on an average night?
1: Um, so we uh, currently have space for um, two people to inject at a time, but we do allow up to four people inside the tent for warming at a time. Um, on our first night of operations, and we had no police presence, um, we had... Uh, four individuals um, use the tent over um, the course of five uses. Um, so that was just on our first day when people didn't know about us. Um, since then, we do see our tent um, regularly seeing um, hitting our capacity for warming um, and people coming in and out to receive supplies. Um, But unfortunately, with the police presence, we're not seeing a very large uptake in our uh, supervised consumption offering.
0: Our next question comes from Knut Peterson. When addicts decide they are ready to receive treatment, please speak about the importance of such treatments being available in a timely manner.
1: Uh, Yeah, so the best time to um, connect someone with uh, treatment services is immediately when they're ready. Um, It's important to act on that because anything can happen um, between the time that they say they're ready and uh, when they eventually get to treatment. And if they don't want to go by the time that a bed's available, um, they're not going to. Um, The most success is found when someone they trust is there with them as soon as they're ready. And there's no space for other things to interfere in that. Um, Yeah. Okay.
0: Our next question comes from Laurie Schultz. You've mentioned that the government is closing down some, in brackets, methadone, et cetera, treatment programs. Uh, Example, OATS in Calgary. Can you comment on why such programs are successful as opposed to abstinence based programs?
1: Um, yeah. So the reality for using opioids, especially in the strengths that we're seeing in fentanyl, carfentanil, um, things like that, um, the withdrawal um, impacts that they have on your physical body um, are just brutal, to put it quite frankly. Um, and then... With these treatments, they're able to successfully manage those withdrawal symptoms, which give people space to treat um, the underlying issues that are at the root of their addiction. So um, typically drug use is a coping mechanism for people who've experienced significant trauma and mental health issues. Um, So if you can get rid of the physical withdrawal symptoms, you have more space for... um, working on the underlying issues and reducing your cravings, um, to use, um, more drugs going forward. Um, unfortunately there's a lot of stigma that's attached to this. Um, for a long time the model for treatment was abstinence only, and there's a lot of people who believe that's the only way. Um, and so when you suggest that people are still ingesting a form of a drug, um, to manage their symptoms of withdrawal and their cravings in the long term, um, people disregard that as um, being a valid treatment option, um, although it is the most successful treatment option um, that's available when you look at the numbers for uh, uh, relapses down the road. Um, especially with um, the injectable uh, treatments in Calgary, um, because of the stigma, I think, honestly attached to injecting drugs, um that, that is certainly leading to the reason why these programs are being cut. Um, but one thing to note is that there are certain steps that you need to take to be um, put on that program that they had in Calgary. And one of those is demonstrating that um, suboxone and methadone did not work for you, and as well that other treatment options hadn't worked. So these are specifically for treatment resistant uh, substance abuse disorders. Um, and so, that option, unfortunately, was taken away. And there's nothing um, put in place that can effectively treat them going forward.
0: Our next question comes from Beth Mundell. Has the police presence protected the LOPs from from threats and intimidation?
1: Certainly not from threats and intimidation. The police do stand by and allow a significant amount of verbal abuse from protesters as well as um, interference and destruction of our property um, on the grounds that we don't have lawful enjoyment of the park. Um, that being said, I, I can't really say what would happen if the police weren't there, if protesters would be more emboldened to act um, harshly. Um, what I do know is there was one night where um, the police hadn't shown up um, and we had set up and the protesters ended up calling the police there anyway um, so with that uh, the police continue um, to show up I, um, it's certainly a tricky situation but to be completely candid I don't feel like the police are doing much to reduce the threats and intimidation that uh, LOPs volunteers as well as people who reside in Gall Gardens are facing
0: Our next question comes from um, Cheryl Bradley. Will winter weather affect your operations and how?
1: Absolutely. Um, We would love to be able to set up in a space that's indoors or um, can provide some better heating options. Our tent is only uh, wind resistant up to uh, 55 kilometers an hour so we're not going to put people in danger Um, and as winter comes in, I think the wind is going to be our biggest barrier. Uh, We do have space heaters and our tent has a bunch of uh, fire safety equipment as well as a fire safety rating for our tarps. Um, But, you know, when it's minus 30, uh, a space heater um, isn't going to be enough for people, especially when you're trying to uh, perform an injection on yourself in the cold. Um,
0: Our next question comes from uh, Timothy from the Lethbridge Home. Have you continued to receive $300 tickets from city bylaw officers over the last several weeks of operation?
1: Uh, Yes, yes. We do continue to um, receive tickets both for setting up the tent and as well um, for uh, failure to remove the tent when directed. Uh, We do plan to contest these bylaws in court. Um as there have been uh, certain uh certain things along the way that uh sorry, I don't know how to phrase this the best way. Um not everything has been above board in us receiving our tickets, that's for sure. Um we have we're being told that it's because of our tent structure and yet um the bylaw for setting up a tent is um exempted for rescue personnel and I don't know what you would call overdose response other than uh, rescue personnel as well Um, so they're not finding us specific to the structure they're finding us for events and we had our event permit pending for six weeks and was ultimately denied for reasons that we are contesting as well because they were um, untrue in most cases and based on assumptions about what we were doing and not engaging us about what we were actually offering at the tent.
0: Okay, our next question comes from Knut Peterson. Mm -hmm. Are you aware of how busy the government
1: mobile unit at the shelter is? Um, We have, so there was certainly a slow uptake um, for various reasons. Um, It takes a lot of time to build trust in this community, as well as there's some accessibility issues um, in terms of the location for people who are in wheelchairs or have physical disabilities and as well um, getting in as well as some of the other barriers that come with accessing it compared to what was offered at Arches. Um, However, since the weather has gotten colder, um, people are looking for an indoor space to be able to inject and they are now um, reaching their capacity quite frequently Um, and so what we're trying to do is just offer a secondary space for the people who either um, can't get in there or are still working towards trusting them.
0: Lovely. Our next question comes from Lane. Lane, I'm glad you um, managed to um, figure out the chat features. Um, For six months of the year were more overdose deaths in Lethbridge while the CS was open. Since opening, deaths have increased. How is it that the site was was open, did not lower death counts?
1: Yeah, um, I think what that really speaks to is just how significant of a problem this is. So uh, one of the things that I did skip over in the presentation in the interest of time was about the number of um, overdoses that the SCS was responding to. So um, pretty consistently year over year, um, the Lethbridge... Overdose, or sorry, the Arches SES um, was attending to about 400 to 500 overdoses uh, per quarter. Um, so, tri- or sorry, quadruple that for a year, um, and as well, um, we're looking at average monthly unique clients of about uh, four to 500 people. What um, slide is that? What slide is that? Sixteen uh, that or uh, seventeen was the first stat I gave, and then sixteen, the one before that. Okay. Um. Overall, in the time that Arches was operating, they had um approximately four hundred fifty thousand um drug uses supervised, um, amongst those four to five hundred uh, unique users, and. For all of those overdoses that they responded to, those could have been deaths in the community. Um, For those people who were accessing the site, it kept them alive. But the reality is that even the Arches SCS wasn't able to be available to every single person who uses drugs in this community for various reasons. Um, And unfortunately, the scope of this overdose crisis is far beyond what any agency is able to protect themselves. I think ARCHES did the best they could with the resources they had, but um, unfortunately it's just still not enough and there's more that needs to be done um, with harm reduction as well as in the other three pillars to prevent um, more drug drug deaths in our community.
0: Okay. Our next question comes from Ian Hurdle. I believe people only want to hear at times of dollar costs rather than the emotional situation of people they don't know personally. Mm -hmm. Current cost for drug treatment alone for hep C is $120,000. Comment, please.
1: Uh, Yeah, so um, it costs over $100,000 to our healthcare system every time someone contracts hepatitis C, um, and as well for HIV it's a, it's over $1 million for the lifetime of someone um, who is um, living with HIV. So if harm reduction things like uh, needle exchanges and providing sterile supplies in a sterile environment can cut back on those transmissions, it does save. Um, the studies have shown that approximately for every $1 invested in those types of harm reduction programs, uh, the community sees about $5 in healthcare savings. Um A good chunk of that six million dollars per year that Insight was found to be saving was due to the reduced transmission of bloodborne illnesses between injection drug users. Um, so, although I don't believe that money should be the deciding factor in how we approach um, drug policy in our community, it does just so happen to be a more uh, successful and a financially responsible model as well.
0: We have um, two more questions in the queue, but we're um, at one o'clock. Are you okay to continue? Yeah, absolutely. Sorry, we're at 11 o'clock, not one o'clock, sorry. Um, Laurie Schultz, if all four pillars were fully funded and fully operational, would the need for harm reduction pillar change?
1: Um, I think so. I think right now there's a lot of pressure being put on the harm reduction pillar. Um, But if we had um, successful treatment and prevention put in place, um, then what would happen is there would be fewer people who are injecting drugs in the streets. Um, And I would love to see the need for supervised consumption and uh, overdose prevention sites to be significantly diminished and, um, more work put into, um, other, uh, harm reduction options or more focus put on prevention and treatment. But, um, that's, I mean, that's a a dream of mine for down the line, we'll see if the community gets there or not. In the meantime, what's within my reach personally is being able to provide uh, harm reduction and overdose prevention. So uh, that's personally where I'm at. And I think as well as an agency where uh, the Lethbridge Overdose Prevention Society is at.
0: Okay. Um, Shay has a comment, I suspect that there is some impact by COVID as well, which Uh, I lurker, I concur, Uh, poisoning deaths in Lethbridge went up in lockstep with visits to the SCS dropping due to COVID barriers. Many clients housed in hotels two kilometers plus away from the SCS was a disaster.
1: Um, Yeah, it it really was. And, um, you know, there's... Certainly looking back, um, possibly other ways that we could have gone about um, making sure that people who were housed um, far away from the SCS were still able to access some form of supervised consumption. So if we saw things like being able to send outreach workers out to um, these places where people were staying and using. or Um, You know, like in places where you're locked down, these were isolation spaces, so you weren't permitted to go access the SCS, you weren't supposed to be leaving your space. And while I understand having a really um, strong approach to reducing uh, COVID-19 transmissions within our community, um, I think the thoughts for reducing overdose deaths in our community weren't factored into that approach. Um, and unfortunately we did lose a lot of people as we saw, um, the numbers at the Archers SCS drop.
0: Shay has come in with another question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, there has been a mention of racism being a factor for this issue in Leftbridge. Do you believe that it also, it is also at play with your community's response to people who use drugs?
1: Uh, Yeah, yeah, I I really do. Um, I think, um, you know, one of the consistent comments that I saw both in my time working at Arches and as well as um, that I've heard since starting the Lethbridge Overdose Prevention Society is people saying, well, why don't you just ship them back to the reserve and let the reserve deal with them? Um, There's a really huge uh, misconception that this is specifically an indigenous issue and that um, it stems from being indigenous rather than uh, contextualizing the high levels of, or like the overrepresentation of indigenous people um, amongst people who use drugs and people who are homeless as being connected uh, to the trauma that indigenous people have faced throughout our um, colonial history here in Canada. Um, I think that it's a lot easier for people to other people who don't necessarily look like them. Um, And as well, um, on the flip side of that, I think that as these overdose um, and opioid deaths continue to affect more and more white families, and that's when we start to see um, responses like harm reduction to the um, opioid use um, and to drug use in general, um, the same energy wasn't here Um, for the crack epidemic Um, the same energy isn't here when um, indigenous people are dying Um, so why is it now that we have supervised consumption sites I think almost at every level racism is playing a factor in what services get to be where and um, how the community responds uh, to services once they're in place
0: Lovely Um, Lots of thank yous um and um great presentation thank you appreciate learning about this appreciate the thoughtful presentation respect you know, lorna shay <laughs> uh laurie schultz beth Mundell, ian hurdle mike mark guttle all thanking you uh for oh, this for this wonderful presentation
1: it was my pleasure i love you all so much thank you <laughs>
0: Okay, um, we're going to sign off. Before I do, do you have a take-home message for us?
1: Uh, Yeah, my my take-home message for everyone would be to um, hold your loved ones extra tight. This can um, be a really difficult time for everyone, and as well, reach out to your neighbors who use drugs, uh, take care of each other, and learn how to use naloxone.
0: Lovely, and that's it for us this week. Join us next week, Thursday, for Multiple Marginalizations, Masculinities and militid, Militias. How aggrieved masculinity is playing an intersectional role in the politics of division. Um, thanks very much, and we'll see you all next week.